Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Hey everyone, I'm Scott and I love being one of the pastors here at HPC. It'd be great to keep Psalm 8 open because as we dig into God's Word today, we're actually going to start and end our time in Psalm 8. But we're thinking about uh, in this series of what it is to be human. Uh, today we're actually going to think about our need to be special and what is it, if anything, that does make us special. But let me tell you a little bit about the dreaded pink spoon in our home. We only have uh, one pink spoon in our house and we have two girls in our house. Now that maths is gonna be very important in a moment. A couple of times a week, I'll make a coffee and then I'll also make my two girls a baby chino. And over the last few weeks, I found myself in what can only be described as a high pressure situation. I go to make the coffee and I pull out the spoons and both girls want the dreaded pink spoon. And so last time one of the girls didn't get the dreaded pink spoon, tears followed <clears throat> and emotions erupted because she told me she wanted to feel special. And I didn't make her feel special and I obviously, as she told me, didn't love her either. A high pressure situation with the dreaded pink spoon. Now there are many things this dreaded pink spoon has taught me over the last few weeks. But one of the things it highlights about our humanity is this deep desire we do have to be special. It's this desire that we have to want to be affirmed, to want to be worthwhile. So Hugh McKay, an Australian psychologist, in his book, What Makes Us Ticks, he says the deepest longing that we actually have as humans is to be validated, to be known, to be loved and valued as a person. And this is the air we live and breathe in our culture right now. My generation was a generation that grew up with encouragement awards every week that I played soccer and rugby. I remember getting an encouragement award because I was so special every single week. We have these creeds and slogans as well in our culture right now that affirm the value of different people. So you've got black lives matter or love is love. Even in our own backyard at the University of Newcastle, Look at how they market the uni to prospective students. Every path is welcome here. Every student is celebrated. So it doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from, what path you've trod in life, everyone is to be celebrated, affirmed and validated. And so as we open up God's word today, we're going to see why we have this innate desire to be affirmed. And what we're actually going to do is we're going to go creation, fall, redemption. And in creation, we're going to see they're actually more validated and affirmed and special than we often give ourselves credit for. But in the fall, we're going to see simultaneously 
we're less special than we give ourselves credit for. And in the redemption, we're going to see that it's actually Christ's specialness, his righteousness that by God's grace we receive when we trust in Jesus and think about what that means at the end of the talk for how we live. But first, let's look at creation and think about why we matter as humans and have a significance far more than we realize. So have a look at that Psalm 8. Have a look at the question David asks in this song to God about humanity in verse 4. He asks, what is mankind, God, that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. And now have a look at the answer in verse 5. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the work of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea, everything is under their feet. So what does it mean to be human? Well, Psalm 8 teaches us God has made this significant place of honour to humanity in his creation. Verse 5 says we've been made just a little lower than angels, heavenly beings. And what he's communicating there isn't about the, the kind of lowness we are compared to angels, but that we've actually received the highest possible honour for earthly creatures. That's why he goes on to say in verse 5, God has crowned us with glory and honour. Glory and honour are supposed to conjure up images of splendour and impressiveness. They're words in the Bible that are usually reserved for God. But that is where God has placed humanity as royal kings and queens over his creation. And so in verse 6, he goes on to say, God has made us rulers over that creation. Everything is under our feet. Now, how often do you think of yourself as a king over this creation or a queen over this creation? How many times this series have we read in Genesis 1 that we have rule and dominion over this creation and it's kind of just washed over us the significance of that? We matter so much more than we realise. And here in Psalm 8, David's picking up on the themes out of Genesis 1. And the idea that humanity has been created in the image and likeness of God, we have the privileged role to reflect God and his glory in the way that we rule and relate in love. No other creature has that. We are unique in creation. We have special honour in creation. We are valued by God so much more than we realise. And this is the doctrine of human value and dignity that's driven Christians like William Wilberforce to fight for the abolition of slavery. It's this doctrine of human value and dignity that drove guys like Martin Luther King Jr., an American Baptist minister to fight against racial inequality in the American civil rights movement. See, the foundational reason why humans are to be valued, that we matter, it's only found in Christianity. Our world today, we still believe it in us at a surface level. We fight against gender equality. We fight against racial discrimination. But in our secular culture where we've removed God out of our thinking, we say the reason we fight for human rights, the reason black lives matter, the reason that we want equality for women, well, our culture says they're self-evident truths. These are things that just are, duh, right? They're, the, they're the, just the truth, right? We, we fight for these things because they're self-evident. We just get that. Everyone knows it. 
But listen to what the non-Christian historian Tom Holland says in his book, Dominion. He says this idea that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth back in the day. A Roman would have laughed at it, he says. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption that everyone possessed worth. And the origins of this principle, he say, it's not in the French Revolution or the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. A non-Christian affirms the foundational reason that as humans we matter and have value and significance. It's not self-evident. It's not because we're thinking creatures. It's not because the color of our skin. It's not our gender. Our value doesn't come from something in us. What primarily makes us special is our relationship with God. Human beings are the created effect of God's speech as he spoke us into existence with the purpose to reflect his glory. We are special because of God, because he chose to create us, because he chose to crown us with glory and honour, because he chose to love us. We are more special and validated than we think. We have this place of honour in creation because of the God who created the universe. But then as we come to the fall, we simultaneously see we are less special than we care to admit as well. So Paul says to us in Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He goes on, for although they knew God, we neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but our thinking became futile and our foolish hearts were darkened. We all knew that God existed, but all of us, we suppress that truth. Or our human default, what's innate in us, and we're all equal in this as well, is to cut God out of the equation altogether. And therefore, to cut out the only relationship in our life that does truly give us significance. And so how special do we become in light of this sin? Well, Paul goes on in Romans 3, there's no unrighteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. We've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. We're worthless because of sin. We are corrupted, broken images of God, now useless because of sin. But instead of turning back to God, in our sin and our desire to want to be affirmed, we haven't gone to that relationship that's significant. Because of our sin, we draw inward and seek to find other things that are going to validate our existence, other things that are going to speak to us and tell us we matter. Our culture used to more commonly look to external things outside of us in our communities to validate us. Things like career and family and wealth or lifestyle. I look for success and achievement in these things to speak my worth to me, to try and prove from these things that I still matter. And if we look for our validation in those things, well, I was talking to a guy last week who said he often sees people when they lose their career or they lose their wealth or they're made redundant 
or if they retire, it can often rock people to their very core. Because when those things are taken away, they lose their sense of self. But over the last few decades, as uh, Richard Sweatman showed helpfully last week, in our shift towards individualism, there's been a move away from outside validation to inward self-discovery, self-expression. And so we now see a false gospel of self-affirmation. Nowadays, I need to break free from those prehistoric cultural norms and the shackles of the outside world. Don't let anyone else tell you who you are or how to live. Things outside of you shouldn't validate you anymore. No, you need to look within. You get to decide who you are. You need to affirm who you are. Now, let me illustrate this this gospel of uh, self-affirmation and how it's preached by doing something that I'm not sure we've ever done before, all right? I'm going I'm to share an illustration of a movie that's coming out this week that I haven't seen. And I'm going to predict the storyline. The movie is called Enchanto. And it's uh, a kid's movie for Disney. Disney are great at preaching this gospel of self-affirmation. But every good story has three parts to it. The setup, the conflict, the resolution. I'm going to predict the story. And then we're all going to go watch it and see if I got it right. But here we go. Here's the setup first, all right? I've watched the trailer, two two minute trailer, that's it. And it's not one of those trailers that gives everything away, but here we go. Okay, the setup. Enchanto is a tale of an extraordinary family where each member of the family has a unique magical gift like super strength or healing. Each member except for one, Mirabelle, the main character. And even though her family will say she's special, she won't be able to accept herself. And then comes the conflict. There's going to be this kind of outside conflict. Something's going to happen to the family's magic and Mirabelle will realise that somehow she is her family's only hope to save the magic. But the deeper conflict is going to be inside. As she goes on this journey to save her family, Mirabelle will also go on an inner journey to find her inner magic, to be true to herself and realise that she is truly special She'll have that moment of self-discovery and then the resolution will come. The outward resolution with the courage and bravery, Mirabelle will break free from society's view of what it means to be special and she'll finally know within herself that she matters and has significance. And in this process of self-discovery, Mirabelle will not only redeem herself, but she'll actually redeem her whole family and her community from their view that she'll change their view of what it means to be special. She'll break the cultural norms and then others in a community will also then be able to find the magic inside of them. Let's see if it ends up being true. But it comes out this Thursday, see if I'm wrong. But this gospel of self-affirmation, of self-validation that our culture preaches over and over again, it is so destructive. Let me give you three brief reasons why I think it's destructive. The first one is it's contradictory. When I'm out with my two-year-old and she says, look, daddy, look, daddy, look, daddy, look, daddy. And she's on her scooter and I look over to her and she does this weird kind of squat and then goes, woo. I don't say to her, darling, stop looking outside of yourself for validation and affirmation. I think we realise to do that would be unloving. We get this idea that we, we desire external affirmation. But in the gospel of self-affirmation, we preach on the one hand, you don't need anyone else to validate you. 
you do you. But on the other hand, our culture still gets really angry when people or things outside of me don't affirm me. To not affirm someone has become the greatest and most unforgivable sin in our culture. It's, to do that, it's called harmful, unloving. But why is it such a sin if we don't need that external affirmation in the first place? We're preaching, or this gospel of self-affirmation is preaching a contradiction that you only need self-affirmation and then in addition to that, you also though have the right to demand society validates you for who you are. That's the first one, it's a contradiction. Secondly, it's destructive because it's an exclusive gospel. Rebecca McLaughlin talks in her fantastic book, The Secular Creed, where she kind of shows the tangling of modern slogans like Black Lives Matter, how they're actually anchored in Christianity. She speaks of a personal experience where she met with two women who were in a romantic relationship. And Rebecca tells of how she was going to share with others her story of how she grew up attracted to women, but chose not to pursue those attractions and instead married a man and had great joy in that relationship. These two women told her she should not express herself. To do so would be harmful to young, vulnerable people. They got to condemn her, but she had to affirm them. It's a contradictory an exclusive gospel. And it's crushing. This is the third thing. I'm trying to affirm who I am from within, but we're chasing external affirmation more than we ever have without even realising it. So I'm confused. And then there's so much pressure to be true to myself and be authentic and to find the magic inside of me. It's no wonder people are so insecure in our identities. A gospel that promises freedom is enslaving us more and more. But the Christian gospel, the true gospel, warns us, don't look within. By nature, we are sinful. There's nothing inherent within us to validate or affirm. But in God's undeserving love, he gives us affirmation from another. He gives us Christ's righteousness when we trust in him so paul says in romans 5 you see at just the right time when we were still powerless christ died for the ungodly very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die but god demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners not affirming us christ died for us since we've now been justified by his blood How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So while we were still ungodly sinners, God's enemies, powerless to save ourselves, Christ, the perfect image bearer of God, died for us, objects of wrath, so that by his blood, his righteousness is placed on us. When we trust in Jesus, God looks at us as our judge and he declares you righteous despite who you are. By God's grace, we receive Christ's righteousness from outside ourselves. I'm affirmed by the God of the universe and brought back in a relationship with the eternal God. I have that relationship of significance once again, all because of Jesus, 
nothing to do with me. And this gospel, it's anything but oppressive. In Christ, I find a solid identity and a true freedom as I recognize it's not my affirmation that I care about anymore. I've been created and saved in relationship with God to reflect His image, to glorify Him. And so I truly live now empowered by the Spirit, empowered by God's grace to be a person who is God-affirming, not self-affirming. They come back with me to Psalm 8. See, Psalm 8, it's not a song that's primarily about humanity, but a song of praise directed directed towards God. And as we read this, we're going to do three practical applications out of this to, to finish the talk. Psalm 8, verse 1, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God has set his glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. He picks that image there through weak, vulnerable, dependent people, humanity. It's through little humanity that God establishes his stronghold against his enemies. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, when I look at the universe, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Compared to you, God, who are we? (laughs) Bunch of nobodies that you've chosen to love, that you've chosen to care for and in Christ redeem us despite how we've treated you. Verse 5, it's God who made us a little lower than the angels. Verse 6, God made us rulers. God put everything under our feet. Verse 9, he comes back to that refrain that he started with, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a song of praise to God. It tells us about humanity, but it is primarily teaching us to be God-affirming people. So let me give us three applications of what this looks like to be God-affirming people. And the first one is that in this true gospel, remember you have a secure identity. Many of us struggle with people pleasing and caring too much about what others think of us. Many of us have grown up in homes where despite our need for external affirmation, you are not affirmed at all. The gospel teaches us God is our judge though, no man. And in Christ, he judges us as righteous declared justified by grace. That is who you are. And so as Christians, we live loving and fearing God more than anyone else as our righteous judge. I'm not needy from affirmation from my peers, from created things, from culture. I don't need it. We can be secure in Christ even when we're not affirmed by others. Now that doesn't mean we write off You know, when people critique us or affirm us, we can still accept positive affirmation and negative critique. But I have such a secure identity in Christ now that I have the humility to actually listen to those rebukes and listen to criticism or listen to positive affirmation. But I do it and I take those on through the lens of the gospel. Does this feedback that I'm receiving agree with what God affirms? Because if it does, then I'll take it on board. I'll repent if I've been sinful. I'll accept praise and give it to God if he, through his grace I've done well. 
I'll take it on board as I seek to test and improve God's world. That's what it looks like to have a secure identity. But secondly, be God-affirming people, I think, helps us think about how we witness to the world. See, in the false gospel of self-affirmation, they've uncritically conflated and brought together love and affirmation to mean the same thing. So if you want to love me, you have to affirm me. And if you don't affirm me, then you don't love me. I learned that with the dreaded pink spoon the last few weeks. But the true gospel shows us that's not actually true. In the true gospel, God's love is so much deeper than that. He demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. He simultaneously loves us while condemning our sin. And I think there's actually two ways this helps with our witness in the world. The first way is we as God's people want to be known as people who sacrificially love our neighbours. We don't cut ourselves off from those we disagree with. We show love even to our enemies. And so if anyone comes to HBC, we want them to feel loved and cared for, shown hospitality and generosity. We want to take a genuine interest in everyone because every person has been created in the image of God. But at the same time, we don't conflate and bring together love and affirmation. We speak the truth in love. A true friend's not someone who only ever tells you how good you are and only gives you positive feedback. Now, a true friend is someone who loves you enough to speak God's truth, to affirm what God affirms and gently rebuke what God rebukes. Even if the world thinks it's the most unforgivable sin to do that, we want to persevere and love people so much that we'll point out their sin, point out our own sin and call each other back to God's grace in Jesus' death and resurrection. Final practical application is to be God-affirming through other people. In terms of like thinking about words of affirmation and that kind of stuff, the, world, the world's view of praise and celebration and words of affirmation is just simply to praise the person, right? Example, you are so great. I love this about you. <laughs> but having a Christian view of validation means celebrating someone else with God's view of what's important. You know, I'm excited how you ended up getting this job or making this decision in this relationship, but what I'm most excited about was the way that you approached that with absolute godliness and dependence and God in prayer. Having a Christian view of affirmation means celebrating the work of God in our lives and giving him praise and thanks for his grace and spirit at work in his people. I'm thankful for God how you did this. Or I can see how God has been at work in you through these things. Praise him for that. Give thanks to him for that. We've been created and saved by Jesus. God has affirmed us to have Christ's righteousness. We don't need to be a self-affirming people. We want to be a God-affirming people. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Let's give praise to him now. Our Heavenly Father, God, you are perfect. You are holy, you are good, you are just, you are merciful. And we thank you that in your love and in your sovereign choice, you decided to create humanity in your image. We thank you for the privilege it is to have that role, to rule and relate in love. We thank you that that gives us a significant place in this creation. And we're sorry for the way that we've completely desecrated that.
that we turned our backs on this relationship that gave us significance and rebelled against you in our sin, pursuing our own self-affirmation. Lord, help us not to look within ourselves, but to look towards you. And we thank you that in your plan of redemption, in your love and grace and kindness, you sent Jesus into this world to die for us so that we could receive his righteousness. We thank you that as our righteous judge, you now look at us in Jesus and declare us to be righteous with you and you've brought us back into this relationship of significance. Lord, in light of all that, help us to affirm you above all. Help us to be a people who praise and love others because we want to glorify you more than anything else in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.